Aloha. Mahalo for joining us on the conversation. I'm Bill Dorman in this morning for Catherine Cruz. It's Monday, October 2nd. A temporary agreement on government spending means the federal government will not be grinding to a halt. And that means funding for the Federal Emergency Management Agency's work on Maui will continue uninterrupted. But many questions remain on Maui this morning, including the future of some families who have been in short-term housing. There are also questions lingering from last week's extraordinary hearing on Capitol Hill. This morning, we'll give you a closer listen to some parts of that you may have missed. Education choices in West Maui are another question. We'll have an update. And what's next for tourism in Hawaii? Some answers this morning from the interim head of the Hawaii Tourism Authority. Those stories and more are coming up. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman, and today for Catherine Cruz. At least the federal government's still on the job this morning, including on Maui. So much work remains to be done on the west side of that island. One immediate focus remains short-term housing, and developments continue to come quickly. In fact, sometimes so fast that you can lose track of some important markers. That may have happened last week. On Thursday, there was an extraordinary hearing before a subcommittee of the U.S. House Committee on Energy and Commerce, which, by the way, is the oldest standing legislative committee in the House. It was started in December 1795 with a focus on commerce. Last Thursday, the focus was the Maui fires for the Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations. Witnesses included Shelley Kumura, president and CEO of Hawaiian Electric. She got most of the questions from lawmakers. Also, Mark Glick, Chief Energy Officer of the Hawaii State Energy Office, and Public Utilities Chair Leah Asuncion, Jr. We're going to play you two excerpts from those hearings that you may not have heard. One on the nature of investigations and of what happened on Maui on August 8th and earlier, and one on the practice of putting electric wires underground. We're starting this morning with a question from a Democratic member, Representative Jan Schakowsky, who has represented the 9th District of Illinois for more than 24 years. That includes parts of Chicago and some of its northern suburbs. And she started with a very broad question to Shelley Kimura of HEI about investigations. All of the investigation is not complete. Um, what kind of impact does that have on your testimony today? What are we waiting for? What might you find out that has not yet been revealed because there is not yet a complete investigation? It's difficult to speculate on what might be found or what might not be found. This is a very complex situation, as you've been hearing from many of the members here. Um, I've talked about in my opening statement being a part of a system and a community. There's a, there's a system here that was in play for all of these conditions to happen all at one time um, that resulted in the devastation in Lahaina. And there's 
a lot to unpack there. It's very complex. Many people, many different organizations are involved and many conditions are involved and all of that needs to be taken um, into account. And those are all critically important to understand and how all of that works together as an interdependent system for us to figure out the right solutions for Hawaii as well. How soon do you think that you're gonna get the um, final information from which you can plan ahead on the changes that need to be made? The Attorney General, who's doing one of the in investigations, Hawaii State Attorney General, and uh, the ATF who's supporting the Maui County Fire, uh, Fire Department and the County of Maui, I understand that they are both saying it'll take 12 to 18 months. And so we're still in the very early stages. We expect ours to take many months as well. Hawaiian Electric CEO Shelly Kimura responding to a question about investigations of the Maui fires, answering questions from Representative Jan Schakowsky, Democrat of Illinois. Another topic, what would be involved in putting electric wires underground instead of leaving them overhead and potentially vulnerable to high winds? That was what Texas Republican Michael Burgess was asking about. He represents the 26th Congressional District in Texas, part of Fort Worth, areas north and west of Dallas. He's held that seat for more than 20 years. He started his questioning with Hawaii Electric CEO Shelley Kimura and then continued with PUC Chair Leo Asuncion. Is there ever any option to bury these uh, del delivery lines? Um, are they always going to be above ground, or is it, is it just too cost prohibitive to, to, to bury the lines? So uh, the, the, um, the standard is on Maui is, it, is for lines to be overhead. A customer can uh, opt to have it undergrounded, they have to pay for that undergrounding. It is very expensive. Um, so some customers opt to do that and they pay for that. About 50% of the lines on Maui are undergrounded. Five zero, 50%. As in comparison, as I understand it, California is about 33% undergrounded. So you have more underground delivery water. Yes. Is I mean, obviously, some of this infrastructure is going to have to be replaced as as you rebuild. Again, I would just ask if is is undergrounding a consideration during the rebuild? As I've talked to some community members in Lahaina, they would like to have the lines undergrounded. Understandably, these are conversations that we're going to have to continue to have, and solutions we're going to have to figure out. Undergrounding, in general, is about five times more expensive. And on a small island like Maui with only 70,000 customers, that can get very expensive sure. in a place where they have the highest, we have the highest rates in the nation. And we're already facing an economy where many of our people who have lived in Hawaii for a long time can no longer afford to live in Hawaii. So those are the kinds of considerations we have when we make these kinds of decisions and the kinds of conversations we need to have as a community to make sure that we're doing the right thing and the best thing for that community. Thank you for that answer. Uh, Mr. Asuncion, in your, in your statement, uh, you said that the commission of which your chair is going to take a proactive approach to ensure that 
Hawaii Electric mitigates its risk. Um, I'd like for you to elaborate then on that a little bit and then just add, is, is undergrounding of the utility one of those measures? Yeah, I, you know, like Ms. Kimura said, I think we look at um, all aspects of whether or not right, it goes underground. Um, like she said, there is that option, right? If the customer does want to have it underground, certainly we'll put it underground. And, and we do, like a lot of our newer communities across the state, mm -hmm. right? We have it underground versus overhead. Uh, it does come at some costs, right? To the ratepayer, to the company, um, basically to all of us in the state of Hawaii. Um, you know, I, I, you know, one of our, one of our things is really looking at the cost, but, um, you know, I will say as a, as an urban planner and knowing the conditions underground, uh, especially in Hawaii, mm -hmm. you can hit, you hit the water table pretty quickly. Sure. So those are other consideration, more technical considerations that we need to look at. Um, there is a cost to maintaining those lines under, underground. Sure. So all of that is wrapped up, you know, in how we look at, you know, the work that Hawaiian Electric will do, or even our uh, cooperative on the island of Kauai, right? It, it's all the same considerations, right? At the end of the day, uh, are we impacting the ratepayers greatly uh, just for that island, right? Uh, what, you know, we don't have like subsidizing up island, another island grid towards one. So. At the end of the day, I, I get it, but sometimes the cost of doing nothing turns out to be prohibitive also. Hawaii PEC Chair Leo Asuncion and Hawaiian Electric CEO Shelley Kimura talking about putting electric wires underground in response to questions from Republican Congressman Michael Burgess of Texas. That congressional testimony came Thursday before a subcommittee of the House Energy and Commerce Committee about the Maui fires. Stay with us as we take a pause from regular programming for a test of the emergency alert system right after this break. Support for HPR comes from Outrigger Resorts and Hotels, committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'aina, caring for the land. Outrigger.com. HPR enriches its reporting with important historical context. The anniversary of the death of Captain Cook may not be replacing Valentine's Day celebrations in Hawaii anytime soon, but there is a growing awareness of this history and what it means to the Native Hawaiian people. The story goes on February 14, 1779. Word is being shouted from the ocean that this chief has been shot and killed. And in that one tense moment, the chiefs are not having it. That's when Cook is killed. There's a growing sense that we can no longer tolerate the big and small incursions upon our land and our people. Hawaiian historian Kihau Abad says this was a symbolic moment for Native Hawaiians. Cook's arrival brought with it infectious diseases that devastated the Native Hawaiian population. Support local news coverage. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. 
Now on view is Salman Tour, No Ordinary Love, telling stories of family life, queer desire, and immigrant experience. HonoluluMuseum.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Today, we're looking at the long and storied history of Spanish immigration and culture in the Hawaiian Islands. While historians believe that many enterprising Spanish adventurers came to Hawaii aboard whaling ships, the first ever Spaniard to visit Hawaii's shores is believed to be Francisco de Paula Marin, often called Menini. This jack-of-all-trades became a confidant of Kamehameha I and is credited with the first documented introductions of pineapple, mango, and oranges in Hawaii. He was followed by waves of Spanish immigrants who began to make the long journey to Hawaii in 1907, just as Portuguese immigration to the islands began to wane. These immigrants were mostly laborers from the province of Malaga, seeking work in Hawaii's sugarcane plantations. The first of these ships arrived on April 26, 1897, after 47 days at sea. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the name of this first steamship to bring Spanish immigrants to Hawaii? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, host of The Body Show. Each week we do our best to provide you with up-to-date medical information from our local experts that might help you or someone you love know more about the world of medicine. Join us today for our latest episode at 6.30 right here on The Body Show. We're about two weeks from the point where schools are scheduled to reopen in Lahaina now, but there are a lot of questions that linger over that reopening. Megan Tagami is with uh, Civil Beat, and she is uh, joining us today with a uh, with a reality check in terms of how that's uh, how that's going and how plans are going. Megan, thanks for uh, for being with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. And this is really 
a bit of, again, so much of what's going on in West Maui is making things up on the fly, the combination of planning ahead, but also moving ahead. And education seems to fall into this category as well. Yes, definitely. Um, You know, just last week, the DOE announced that um, three of the Lahaina campuses will be returning to school after fall break, kind of staggered across three days starting um, October 16th. And I think since then, it sounds like parents have a lot of questions. They're still trying to figure out what is the best educational situation for their family and for their kids, whether it be continuing with online learning or sending their kids back to in-person learning on campuses. And, you know, the experience of online learning through the pandemic for many parents turned out to be problematic in a lot of ways. And, and so there, for, for some, there is, is an eagerness to, to move towards uh, getting, getting kids back in classrooms, but, but making sure that that's also safe as well. Definitely. Some parents that I talk to who currently have their kids enrolled in distance learning, they have mentioned that. It's been challenging because um, logistically they just don't have, um, they just can't stay home with their kids all day to make sure that they're getting their work done and they have, you know, supervision as they're completing their online classes. But of course, at the same time, distance learning for some families is a more feasible option right now. And it's just something that they feel safer with um, because they're nervous about sending their kids back to um, the Lahaina campuses or they just feel better having their families um, kind of reunited and together all day. And with some of the parents that you spoke with, as you mentioned, they're, everybody's facing differing circumstances and seemingly that ability to, to have choices is something that is also a powerful part of this. Definitely. Um, so like I mentioned, the DOE's um, distance learning program um, is available for families and families have you know really been interested in that option, it seems like, since late August, early September. Um, the DOE also has a, has a distance learning hub open that provides you know, some in-person support to students who are taking um, classes remotely or online. But that is set to close um, this upcoming week, so it won't be, um, it sounds like it won't be available to families you know, once um, Lahaina schools open on the 16th. And then of course, schools, um, the Lahaina schools will be opening starting October 16th, um, but that's still a choice that families have to make whether or not they want to send their kids back to the campuses or not. You know, you also write about some some other options that are that are out there now that that take a different take on a different appearance given given the circumstances, and that's uh, that's certainly including some charter school situations, and and that's a situation that is uh, that is active certainly in, on West Maui as well. Definitely, um, you know, I spoke with. Um, Hawaii Technology Academy and following the fires, um, they knew that there was a need for, you know, more educational opportunities in West Maui. So they set up a campus um, in Lahaina that was providing um, kind of a hybrid learning opportunity for parents and students where students go in person a few times a week to the campus and then they take classes um, remotely other days of the week. And this was also a really popular option I was talking to. Um, their executive director, and it sounds like their wait list was filling up um, to about 300 students in a couple of weeks after the Lahaina campus opened. So that's definitely a um, you know, valuable opportunity for families. But again, the demand from families is just exceeding um, what 
some places can offer right now. But again, right now, in the eyes of the uh, Department of Education, certainly, seemingly, they everything is on track for their planned reopening in a couple of weeks. Is, is that right? Yes. Um, so the department um, was announcing last week that they've conducted air and water and soil quality tests, and everything looks good for students to um, return to campus. Um, the department also said that um, you know, they're working on um, evacuation plans in the case um, kind of to respond to the wildfire and some parents' concerns about any um, evacuation plans um, or evacuation needs that might come up at the Lahaina campuses. So it does sound like the DOE is on track for their reopening after fall break. We'll keep an eye on that evolving situation. Thanks so much. Megan Tagami with today's Reality Check. Thanks, Megan. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can read Megan's story online at Civil Beat. Tourism on West Maui certainly is a complex issue. Less than a week before the area is slated to reopen to visitors, the Hawaii Tourism Authority kicked off a two-day conference this morning at the Hawaii Convention Center on Oahu. A good part of the focus will relate to the impact of the Maui wildfires and working towards some kind of recovery for tourism. The HTA board approved a more than $2.5 million marketing contract to help in that effort. The conversation's Catherine Cruz spoke with Daniel Naho'opii, who is the interim president and CEO of the HTA. He was named to that position when John DeFries stepped down last month. Naho'opii said the board has approved a contract to bolster its international marketing in both Canada and Japan. Our annual tourism conference is looking at both what's happening on Maui and particularly from the residents' perspective as well as businesses in the industry and our efforts to support the economic development and economic support and jobs. Uh, An important part is maintaining jobs and employment for Maui residents. The impact uh, resulted in about a loss daily of 11 to 13 million dollars, you know, in statewide impact. The area that's affected accounts for about 15% of our overall visitor industry revenue. You know, Waikiki is only 30 or something percent, so it's like just half of that, and that's a huge comparison. That's all of West Maui side. And what happened during the wildfires is obviously people pulled back on their vacations, whatever island, even though it was it was primarily mm-hmm. Lahaina that was affected. Yeah, because you know how visitors are. They're not the best at geography whenever there's a volcano eruption, the same. Uh, there's a slight confusion, so that's what we've been in the market, putting out maps, informing travel agents and operators of informing visitors in general. We have our new uh, U.S. marketing recovery plan, which puts out ads and telling about what is available, what's open, and then to come to Maui in a very respectful and compassionate way. But part of that support of Maui residents and uh, Maui businesses is coming to buy local, make reservations in restaurants, and keep the jobs on Maui. We have just allocated a big chunk of money to go to marketing 
we are running against strong competition in our international markets. Uh, tourism Fiji is pushing against us. There's opportunities in Europe right now for the U.S. market. Because of the strong dollar, they're able to go to those international destinations that they didn't think about before. So we have to be in there reminding visitors or potential travelers that Hawaii has a unique proposition, and that is we have the culture, the people, the values, which is a part of that global trend towards regenerative tourism, where you learn a little bit more about the culture. You have an authentic experience, as opposed to some of those resorts and other international destinations, which are different. Yeah. So, you know, we've got this, we've got this uh, uh, funding now, and then uh, HBCB is in charge of uh, basically securing a vendor securing event or, you know, uh, pulling this out? So um, we've done a couple of, uh, let's see, uh, marketing campaign, uh, funding of marketing. So there's a U.S. marketing recovery plan that was funded two meetings ago. Also, at, at yesterday's meeting, they supported a Canadian interim Maui plan as well because, you know, the Canadians are the second largest market on Maui. They have a lot of second homes or as well as they come for the condos and stay. Right, and the no, they come snowbirds, yeah. Mm -hmm. So they'll be working then. That's a different vendor as well. As well as we've asked all of our marketing in-market global partners to look at pivoting to support Maui as well as the general state in terms of this recovery period. So, you know, working, as I mentioned, working with their partners and networks to inform visitors about what's available in Maui, how they can visit respectfully, as well as take the opportunity to donate if they aren't able to come. Yeah, and we heard Maui Mayor Bisson, you know, talk about a phased-in approach, and he wants to be sensitive to the residents, and he, the residents don't want to be, you know, gawked at, and, and, you know, they just really need, I think the word was kindness, right? It's just please be respectful. And and there is a segment that just doesn't feel that we're ready, and then we're going to be ready on the 8th. We understand the difficult decision that the governor and Mayor Bisson had to make, you know, to ensure that there's space for that respectful and uh, cautious recovery, but at the same time supporting Maui's economy, right, to keep residents employed for those who are in the industry and those jobs in place, as I mentioned before, you know, so that the families are not going to leave Maui. As the mayor had mentioned, there's a phased approach, and we're working with his team and the governor to understand what that means and to get more details. And as soon as information is available, uh, we will be sending it out to our partners and networks. And, you know, I understand that Hawaiian Air is doing a little campaign of their own, right? I think using some of their own uh, workers to share the story of this recovery and for folks to be sensitive. That's part of our uh, U.S. marketing program as well, Recovery. We've interviewed uh, residents in the area talking and from Lahaina, from other parts of Maui, who, or, and those who work in the industry to talk about their story so that potential travelers understand and develop that empathy and compassion and also understand that if they do come to Maui or other parts of the state, that it's in a respectful and compassionate way. You know, that's part of all of our regenerative tourism program that we've been working on with John with Malama Kuuhome, right, which is to change the face of tourism. So it's not plop and drop, but it's get to know us, understand that this is an island home for us, a Kama'aina residents. And so you can come to visit, but you're a guest and behave appropriately. 
How is it working, you know, the boots on the ground with the hotels? Because we have so many residents in hotel rooms right now. And obviously, then if we open up, we've got to be able to to make space. And so, you know, how do you address that? So we are uh, supporting the governor's task force on the, the housing, the temporary housing. I think he just released another announcement about shifting some of the residents around. You know, part of it is consolidating to make it they can address and have the appropriate types of accommodations for residents, right? There's only so long that you can stay in these uh, hotels with no kitchens and laundry facilities. And my understanding is that the task force is, you know, trying to find more longer-term housing as uh, the residents are given the time to repair, rebuild, and uh, find a way to recover. And we were hearing that analysts believe that it's the timeshare market that will lead to recovery. You know, as we saw in previous disasters, some of those have kitchens. I mean, is there any thought to be converting some of those areas for longer-term use? by yeah. our residents? The task force has looked at all of the lodging in the West Maui side. And as you know, West Maui has a great mix. There are timeshares. There's also a lot of rental condominiums and townhomes in the area, as well as some of the properties, some of the larger, what we call traditional hotels, actually have you know additional services. They are analyzing it. That's the governor's task force for housing and trying to identify those properties that are best for residents. And then what's your immediate concern, I guess, for the short term? Well, I think, as we mentioned about getting information out, that Maui is safe to travel in a respectful manner and to have visitors understand where they can go, what's open so we can encourage business in those areas and where not to go. And then across the board, understanding that Maui's impact is one portion of our visitor industry. There's still many other islands and experiences to see. So maybe if they want to go to another island as well, so that Hawaii is open. Many travelers have, are kind of mixed on that feeling as well. And it's appropriate to travel in our international markets. We went out already to talk to them to say that it is appropriate to travel because you're supporting employment of uh, residents. And so you don't have to hesitate on that, but do uh, seek out the correct information and understand that uh, we are still in a time of mourning and recovery. But just be sensitive It'll all be around. be sensitive, yes. HTA is just coming off a rough year. You almost have got defunded, <laughs> and there were concerns about the marketing contract uh, that HBCB has held for, for decades. What are your thoughts now that we've had this disaster, and I don't know, some might say it's a good thing that we have HTA intact, and it's a good thing that HBCB is, was still there to be able to, to jump in and hit the ground running. I've heard, you know, from many sources that we worked well, you know, with being there to coordinate the various parts of the industry with the government agencies, federal and state and local government. So, like you said, there needs to be an organization in place to coordinate and network in times of crisis as well as now in the rebuilding and recovery phase. We've heard from legislators and industry during this past session of some of the things we need to make improvements on, including communication and understanding um, some of our activities. So we have increased the level of uh, communication with all of our stakeholders, putting more information out, but also having more time to listen to residents like we have been doing with the Maui recovery programs. An important point, I think, is that the government as a whole, state government, we had an emergency plan in place for tourism disasters. So, you know, being a part of that protocol 
I think was very important. To not be there would be uh, very complex because then you would have to deal with multiple individuals and stakeholders. and that. So I don't see, to be honest, I don't see removal of a, a system like this or a change. And if it does, we have to really take it in slow steps to modify, though. There, there are room for improvement always, right? Right, right, right. Yes. But I'm sure there are people who say, thank heavens that, you know, we didn't dismantle these systems because who knows where we would be, right? I mean, after this disaster. Oh, definitely, yeah. yes. Yeah. I think you've heard from industry as well as our government officials that we've worked closely with. Do you think you'll have an easier time with this next session with the lawmakers? You hope you get uh, your funding restored? I won't say anything until we <laughs> okay. get through this okay. next session, but we definitely will be working closer to understand their concerns and needs and the concerns of residents as well. Because in the end, we are a government agency, you know, and our purpose is to ensure there's benefit to the residents through economic development and jobs, and not to impact them negatively, mm-hmm. but also support as a part of DBED is to support our industry partners and meet their needs. That was Daniel Naho'opi'i, interim term of the interim head of the Hawaii Tourism Authority, talking with HBR's Catherine Cruz about the kickoff of the tourism conference at the Hawaii Convention Center this week. Support for HPR comes from Waikoloa Beach Resort on the island of Hawaii, offering Kama'aina hospitality with a range of options for dining, shopping, and activities. More about rediscovering the Kohala Coast at waikoloabeachresort.com. Support for HPR comes from Parker School in Waimea on Hawaii Island, committed to knowing, valuing, and nurturing each child. Now accepting applications. More at parkerschoolhawaii.org for upcoming events or talk story with admissions. is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. No more astronomy research at Puerto Rico's Arecibo Observatory. Instead, the facility is being repurposed for culturally relevant science education. We learn more in today's Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. Also, things we may even be able to spot ourselves, thanks to the help of astronomer Christopher Phillips, who I believe we've got on the line right now. Chris, welcome back. What's the story this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week's stargazers, look out for Jupiter and Saturn still in the evening sky. Both planets are visible after sunset and can be seen in the south and southwestern portions of the sky. 
The moon this week will be passing through its last quarter phase, and so by week's end, sky brightness will be favorable for spotting those faint objects in the sky. Now, Chris has one of those really super fun topics on Stargazer this week that brings us to the site of, you know, there are a few astronomical facilities that have made it into movies and pop culture and stuff, and this one that he's got today is one of them, huh? It is indeed. And it's official. It's over. There will be no more astronomy at the Arecibo Radio Telescope in Puerto Rico. The NSF has decided not to rebuild the famous dish and has decided instead to turn the site over to science education with the formation of a new center for STEM. That's science, technology, engineering and math focused particularly on the biosciences. So a complete switch. This brings to an end the illustrious research career of this remarkable site. And uh, that's good news. They're reusing it for something, but it always seemed like that thing got wailed on in that one storm that time. Was there ever even a chance that they were going to try to uh, resurrect it? Yeah, it was in a pretty bad way after Hurricane Maria. And to be honest, it was a long shot to expect them to rebuild it. There was a proposal for a replacement facility to be built on the site, with NSF's purse strings tightened and their priorities shifting to other large-scale projects, such as the Rubin Observatory in Chile. It's not really a surprise. That mean it's going to get demolished, or are they going to use it for some kind of cool skate park as well? <laughs> it would make a pretty awesome <laughs> skate park, but unfortunately, they're going to demolish the whole lot. And in fact, they're going to try and return the site to some sort of natural state. And how about a plug for this education center, Chris? What's this thing going to be all about? Oh, it's going to be really cool. The focus is on culturally relevant science, developing workforce skills in engineering and tech, as well as creating an inclusive center for science education that will serve not only the people of Puerto Rico, but people beyond, the world over. It's a noble next step for such a historic site. And what's the opening date on the next thing? Well, here's some good news. Unlike most things here on Stargazer, we won't have to wait thousands of years for this to happen. <laughs> the center will open next year. And certainly any other future developments, we know we'll hear about it from you. Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. Thanks, Dave. You're welcome. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. The Hawaii State Art Museum has a new name. It's part of a series of changes the museum is going through. Marketers would call it a rebranding. HBR reporter Cassie Ordonia covers culture and the arts for us and joins us now with more on the story. And Cassie, this all starts seemingly with the new name. Yeah, so we now know that the Hawaii State Art Museum has a new name called Capital Modern. Mm. Uh, if you a lot of people have seen it on social media, particularly Instagram. That's where they unveiled the name. And it has a new web page, a new logo, and we may expect to see new art and artists in the future. And this is a rebrand concept, and it's been talked about for more than two years. Karen Ewald is the executive director for the Hawaii State Foundation on the Culture and the Arts. And for those who don't know, the Hawaii State Foundation on the Culture and Arts, it's an agency that runs a museum and has been around since the 1960s. Mm -hmm. 
And Karen says the rebrand is separate from what we know as Haisan, uh, from the Honolulu Museum of Art, a.k.a. HOMA. This state museum could do more for the public, like the public deserved more than what we were giving them as a free state art museum with public funds. And I say that because, you know, the collateral was kind of mismatched and confusing. The messaging was not really existent in terms of who the museum was, what they served. It was called High Sam. It, you know, it still is for many people called High Sam at the time. And but the programming was kind of lacking diversity and inclusion of different art forms. You know, also, it's interesting, that word messaging coming up, that that's such a big part of that, of, because sometimes there's confusion around that, as she was talking about. And as you mentioned, you, you go into this in your report uh, quite a bit as well. Yeah. And what's interesting is Karen also told me they were considering several names. They were even in, they were thinking about keeping the word art mm. just to kind of refer to as still the art museum. Sure. They also considered using the word Hawaiian, but they said that wouldn't be as inclusive because the art that's in there is more than art from Native Hawaiians. It's also through uh, for other locals, too. So Capital Modern was something that stuck with them, and, and they were trying to draw a diversity of people into this art museum. And the rebrand, actually, it's interesting. It costs more than $150,000. Wow. That's in state funds. So three years ago, the... Um, uh, Karen said that the um, the agency gave a contract to Wall to Wall Studios. Um, Wall to Wall Studios, it's a marketing company, and um, they've also done work for Zippy's and Bishop Museum. Uh, so they help with the logos and the signage, the maps and the brochures and signage. Uh, uh, and but many people were not happy with this rebrand. Uh, once Capital Modern was established, their so on their social media, some people were saying. Why would you take out the word museum? And others have been supportive of the idea. Um, those who weren't happy was then Governor Ben Cayetano. He wasn't a huge fan of the rebranding. And during his term, he had a different vision of the State Art Museum to expand to five floors. And here's what he had to say. I disagree with it because it sounds like something you would call a brand, a hotel or a restaurant or a business plaza. Whatever you name a state building, there has to be a, a purpose, in part, a little history. But other, but local artists like Solomon Enos likes the name, and he says the rebranding of High Sam is important. My understanding is it will allow the museum to engage with the you know communities in different kinds of ways. And I'm particularly interested in the opportunity for, for the museum to be part of more community-based artwork and mural projects and some other things that I think have been, it's been a bit limiting for the museum to be able to approach or to take on those kinds of roles. So it's strange, but a name change can have a big, big impact, and I think it's really positive. And museum rebranding is not uncommon. Some that... Some make changes to the name are a little bit more subtle than others, and others may not be as noticeable. For example, the Minneapolis Institute of Arts dropped the word S in arts and did this whole rebrand announcement, and all they <laughs> do is just drop the S. And I, I know just last week we were just talking about um, the rebranding of... Um, trying to remember what oh you... in in washington dc you know the the sackler gallery the the art uh, asian art museum um the, the sackler family course associated with the opioid crisis in oxycontin purdue pharma 
and so now they dropped that in terms of now calling it uh, the Asian art, uh, what people used to just call, oh, the Sackler. Um, but again, that as you were saying, the opportunity, a rebrand is an opportunity to change the energy around something, too. Solomon Enos, uh, interesting point that, oh, now maybe here's an opportunity sort of giving permission to shift some of that mission, include more uh, community work uh, in that. Uh, so it's an opportunity. I mean, the, the other word that often comes with rebrand is refresh. Uh, you know, so it's an opportunity really to, to redefine a bit uh, as well, seemingly. So that, that seems to be part of the plans as well. And what Karen Ewald told me, what is interesting is that we don't know what type of folks actually go to the museum. I know Karen just gave me a list of the visitor counts. We see that the visitor count was the highest in 20, around 2019, it was more than 85,000. Then COVID hit, it started declining and it's picking back up again. But there's no disaggregated data to say, oh, more older adults go to museums or more younger adults go to museums. We don't know the genders of people who go to the museum. So Karen is hoping with this rebrand that when they do these visitor counts, they'll disaggregate the data more and then hopefully stir the conversation or the artwork to fit the diversity of folks, whoever's attending these museums. That's an interesting point as well, because again, just giving you opportunities to take fresh looks at at things, uh, because sometimes you don't know, and sometimes you don't know unless you you ask of what what draws you here, what what attracts you to uh, to to a certain uh, uh, area and museum, and and what within that was this something in the permanent collection, was this something in the temporary, was that, um, but that process is uh, something that that goes on throughout the art world, I'm sure, around the world. Yeah, and what I didn't know, Senator Chris Lee told me this, is that, you know, folks had different opinions about the rebranding of HiSAM, but the Honolulu Museum of Art also went through a rebrand once a time ago. Um, it was known as the Academy of Art. Ah, uh, little confusing. Yeah, so um, uh, I was told by Chris Lee that HOMA wanted to do this rebrand because they want to separate themselves from the Academy of Arts School, which is right across the street. So in a sense, that does make sense. And for those who are a little bit confused about the name change, HiSAM is still known as HiSAM because it was written into law. And so Senator Chrisley, who I spoke to, who chairs the Committee on Transportation on the Culture and the Arts, um, says, this, uh, says the name change is still written into law. The State Art Museum was created by law, so that law didn't change. But like any institution, it has the ability to brand itself really however it wants and makes the most sense for the people that it's trying to attract and service. So now that it's expanding on its name, I think there's opportunities to really redefine what it is. And I think there's been a lot of confusion about what it has been the last few years, especially with a lot of folks showing up thinking it's a, an archives or a, a museum of history or other things. So Capital Modern will be hosting an event on First Friday. That's October 6th. Um, it's paying homage to Pride Month, which is in October, which we're in right now. Um, so Capital Modern will be hosting the drag tour with Coco Chandelier and uh, we'll have a DJ and much more. So um, this, this is an opportunity for folks to go and check out um, Hi Sam or now Capital Modern and just uh, take a look at what the rebranding is about. It's interesting with names, too. I mean, as you said, some people can still call it Hi Sam. I mean, 
Don Quixote to moved in not far from us a long time ago. A lot of people still, oh, it's Holiday Mart. <laughs> you know, so going back, but uh, name changing, uh, interesting, and and rebranding uh, an opportunity for for a lot broader activity uh, as well. Um, thanks very much. That was uh, HBR's Cassie Ordonia. You can read more of her stories, of course, online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Now it's time for the answer to today's backyard quiz. Earlier, we took a look at the Spanish connection here in Hawaii. While the islands first started welcoming Spanish immigrants in 1907, Spain's influence in the islands was felt far before that. The notable Spanish adventurer and horticulturalist Francisco de Palomarin found his way into the royal court of Kamehameha I, impacting agriculture and trade within the kingdom. Hawaii saw the majority of Spanish immigration between the years 1907 and 1913, when nearly 10,000 Spaniards settled in the islands to take part in the sugar trade, while the majority of Portuguese immigrants before them came to Hawaii by way of wooden sailing ships All of the Spaniards who traveled to the islands did so aboard comparatively larger passenger steamships. The first of these ships bore the name Heliopolis, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. You might be amazed to know that the Heliopolis brought with it more than 2,000 Spaniards to the territory of Hawaii. Brendan from Kailua wasn't surprised. He knew the answer, and he was the winner today. That's today's quiz. If you have one, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. That is the program for today. Tomorrow, we revisit the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. We'll hear from one of the founding members of Sudden Rush, widely recognized as the first Hawaii group to rap in the Hawaiian language. Do you have a story idea to share with us? You can call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. You can find the conversation on our website or on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in for podcasts. I'm Bill Dorman in for Catherine Cruz today. We'll be back tomorrow with more of The Conversation.